Arts, Lifestyle, SNS Online. In the beginning, there was the Maker, and he made all around us. He made all the men and all the women. He made all the creatures on this, his earth. The Maker loved each and every one of us. But then all us men and women betrayed him. They took his trust and spat on it. And the Maker was angry. He sent us down into dark earth to atone for the sins of our forefathers and mothers. And one day, tis said, the Maker will give us a sign and we will all be forgiven and we will all rise up to the land and the light that the Maker holds there in his palm will be given to all of us and all shall prosper in this life and the next. Hello and welcome to SNS Online. Today's show focuses on an astonishing and powerful debut novel that has garnered much attention and praise for its author on both sides of a pond. Set centuries past in the deep, dank coal mines of Victorian England, Bearmouth offers the strongest of friendships forged in the most desperate of environments. It also acts as a dystopian warning to what is happening in the 23rd century. Published by Pushkin Children's Books, Bearmouth has already been listed as the Times Children's Book of the Year, the 50 Best Books of 2019, and the FT's Best Young Adult Books of this year. Oh, and rumour has it, from a very reliable source, that a film version is on its way. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for Bearmouth's creator, novelist Liz Hyder. So, Liz Hyder, it only takes one person to start a revolution, and I think that person has to be you, Liz, with this powerhouse <laughs> novel, Bearmouth, which I absolutely loved. Um, just cracking stuff. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. A world of hard labour, child labour, in the minds of uh, England centuries past, so dealing with for people who haven't uh, obviously read the book yet, dealing with low life expectancy via rock falls, explosions, meagre diets, murders, and as well as all the rest of it, you've got murders as well. Religion being used as a, as a force of control, but as well as being shocking and upsetting uh, at times, it's also incredibly uplifting. And I would say not the easiest subject to tackle for a seasoned novelist, but this is your debut novel. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's well so I so a confession time and I think this is a really good thing for other right other aspiring writers out there. Go on. It's my first book to be published, but it's my seventh book. Ah, oh, right. So, um, like in the same way that people go and do amazing creative writing or whatever, mm. I just sat and wrote a load of stuff <laughs> um, uh, until I got better. Um, so I'm glad it's my first. I'm glad it's my first one to be published. I think it's the right one to be mm. the first one. Um, yeah. So. No, it's important to underline that. I, I, I get what yeah. you're saying, of course. But but at the same time, even so, Liz, I mean, this is uh, this is quite a quite a debut. I mean, you are the talk of the town, uh, the Guardian and all the rest of it. There's loads of blogs giving the most incredible reviews of Bearmouth. Yeah, it's ama- the reception's been extraordinary. I mean, I sort of, I, I didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, obviously you never do, but you hope that people like it. But I think... 
I've always thought of it very much as kind of more of a Marmite book because it's written in dialect, it's written mm. first person, you know, it's written um, about kind of, you know, it's quite, it's, it's potentially quite dark book, um, you know, as a writer and having, having written a lot over a, a long period of time, you do develop a thick skin to stuff anyway. Yeah. Um, but actually the reception has been extraordinary <laughs> and I'm sort of waiting for people to kind of hate it, I guess. And actually people have really, really strongly loved it. They've had very, very strong reactions to it. Um, and I sort of wasn't expecting that in a way. I think I'm, I'm kind of a cynic. <laughs> I, I'm kind of optimistic for a lot of things, but I'm also quite a cynic. So I guess, I guess it was, yeah, it was a sort of a, without getting all psychoanalytical about it, I think it was just a protection thing, but it's been amazing. People have really taken it to heart and have taken kind of new story to heart. And it's, it's, I mean, I keep pinching myself, like every day something else will happen or someone else will review it or send me a really nice message or, you know, I had a kind of Q&A through, sent through to me from um, uh, a kid at a local school who'd read it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was doing a school project on it. And, you know, it's just lovely having this uh, 12-year-old email you and say, I read your book, it's amazing. That's, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. So what, what led you to write such an extraordinary story? I mean, essentially one buried in time, quite literally. Mm. Um, um, I, I got angry. You got angry? <laughs> um, I got angry. Um, so I went, um, I live in Ludlow in South Shropshire. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm from London originally, as I'm sure listeners will be able to tell from my accent. Mm-hmm. But um I'm not far from Wales and I really like going to the, the, the Welsh coast. I think the Welsh coast is fantastic. One of the kind of best coasts in the world, you know, great walking, whatever. Mm. Went over there kind of for walking holiday, really, and it rained. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, dear old oh, dear. Wales, it rained. What a surprise. Um, uh, so I couldn't go for a walk. So I, I went down a slate mine because <laughs> I was like, it's indoors. We can do that instead. <laughs> as you do. Um, <laughs> as you do. <laughs> and, um, and it was just extraordinary. And I've been down, I went down mines as a kid, you know, I got taken down the odd mine as a kid. Um, but I didn't really sort of remember it. And I knew that children worked in mines, you know, back in the day. And But I'd kind of forgotten all of that stuff. Mm. And then going down this mine and seeing, seeing that, you know, boys from the age of 12, they did have their right nostril slit on their first day when they worked in that mine. And it was to prove that they were kind of man enough to work there. But also it shows that you're the property of the mine, really, as well, at the same time. It's like branding. I, yeah, it is. It is totally. Form of branding, yeah, yeah. It's totally branding, but it's also kind of almost in a way like voluntary branding by the group who work there. So there's sort of a cult element to that as well. Mm. Um, and the other thing, there were a couple of things in, in, in that same mine. It's called the Clamfair Slate Caverns. It's just south of Harlech. Um, there's a big stone figure in the rock. I mean, you couldn't make... Uh, this is what I was thinking. You couldn't make this up. There's a big stone figure in the rock that the workers used to doff their caps to as they came in and out each day, um, which obviously became then, you know, a, a key part of, of Bearmouth. And the other thing was that there was a stretcher there, like a, a kind of a stretcher from 80 years or so ago. And it's a coffin without the lid. Um and if you think about it, it makes sense. If someone has, if you have an injury down in a, a mine and you want to get someone out to the top, you don't want their arms falling out and around everywhere. So it kind of makes sense to carry them in something that has got, you know, <laughs> sides, I suppose. Sure. But it just made me think, this is awful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's extreme exploitation. So, yeah, I got angry. And then I started thinking about, you know, zero-hours contracts, and I thought about how exploitation has sort of been rebranded now as opportunity. Um, and yeah, that's kind of, 
where it came from, really. And then the voice of Newt sort of just popped up in my head. And I always knew um, who Newt was, and I knew that Newt would speak in that dialect. So that Newt's learning to read and write in the book. And so the spellings change uh, and improve as the book goes on, yes. which was a nightmare to proof, I can tell you. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I had a lot of very good people working on that. Um, but, yeah, that's kind of – so it started from – a wet day in Wales <laughs> going down a state <laughs> I get the impression that, you know, the research is forensic. I mean, it, it just feels like one small rung from actually going back in time, witnessing it. Oh, well, that's, thank you. That's amazing. That's kind of what I wanted. But um, so I wanted it to, I wanted it to feel utterly immersive that you feel claustrophobic down there because I don't like, I'm, I will hold my hand up. I'm 42, like on Friday and I am scared of the dark. <laughs> I really, I don't like the dark and I don't like being underground and I don't like small spaces. I wouldn't say I'm claustrophobic and I'm, you know, I'm not, I've been down a lot of mine, so I'm and I'm fine, you know. But there's something very, very oppressive about that environment. Absolutely. Happy birthday for Friday, by the way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's like a challenge of how can I try and recreate that for someone else? How can I try and recreate the the dampness, the, the extreme darkness? I mean, you can hold your hand right in front of you, like right in front of your nose. I'm doing it now, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, you, like literally, so you can feel that your hand is there, your nose can feel it, you can sense that it's there, and you cannot see it. Mm. You cannot see anything. Yeah. The darkness is utterly absolute. And a lot of the stuff that happens in Bear Mouth, a lot of it is based on is based on the research, you know, that people did have to pay for their own candles, their own boots, their own equipment. So on paper, it looked like quite a good job in some ways, you know, it was a, sort of sounded like the money wasn't that bad after all, but then you had to pay for everything. And a lot of the um, in some of the mines where um, the houses you, you would have a house that was that was rented to you by the mine owner, and if you got injured, um, you could get booted out of the house. Well, I mean, you were kind of left with nothing. It's really horrific, and there, I don't think we talk about it enough. Weren't there any nice mine owners? You know, fluffy nice ones yeah. who who wanted to uh-huh. just to be you know give a, a, a reasonable deal. Were they all? I'm going to bleep this word. <laughs> um there were there were some who were a lot better than others definitely Mm. and there were some who paid for children to be educated some who paid for children to go to schools and stuff i mean i'm not a historian i wouldn't kind of pretend to be sure and what i wanted to do with bearmouth was try and get as uh, enough research as much research as i could get to make that world that i've created feel real so in bearmouth my twist is there was no mine in which workers lived underground i've made that up like that didn't happen okay but the pit ponies there were mines where pit ponies were kept there for their whole life. They'd go down mm. when they were old enough to kind of work and had strength, so not quite a foal like an older one, and be kept down there until the day they killed over. Sure. So it's just it's not much of a stretch of the imagination to think, well, if humans are if a human life is not of much value to that owner, why wouldn't you keep them down there as well? You know. Jowl, jowl, and listen, lad. You'll hear the coal face working. There's many a Mara missing, lad, because he wouldn't listen, lad. How would you describe Bear Mouth to people who haven't really, aren't, have known nothing about it at all, just, you know, in a short sort of soundbite, if you like? <laughs> <laughs> it's really hard, because it's kind of a genre-busting book. Like, it's kind of dystopian, but it's not, it's sort of historical fiction, but it's not. It's kind of a page-turning thriller, but it, you know, it kind of crosses lots of different things. I mean, I sort of say that it's it's a thriller, 
it's kind of a page turning thriller set down a, a, a Victorian-esque working coal mine. Mm. But that doesn't really kind of cover half of it, really. It's a very difficult book to have that kind of pitch line. Sure. You know, it's that thing of like, if I was in a lift with Steven Spielberg, how would I pitch in the film? You know. <laughs> Talking about the language of newts, um, I found it fascinating. And, and obviously, it gets easier to read as it goes on. This is pitched for young adults uh, uh, and and above, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so I just wondered, was there any issues at all? Did you think about the fact that dyslexic people might be reading this? And would that be a help or a hindrance to them? I don't know if it's a question you've been asked before. <laughs> It's not actually. I mean, it's an interesting one. So I, I have been asked, like, who, like, who did I write it for? To which the answer is, I, I just, I don't know. I don't really, I don't think about who I write things for. I just write stories yeah. <laughs> and hope that they find a home somewhere. Um, I think if you start writing for, if you're like, in terms of books, if you start writing for an audience, I think then you're in danger of becoming a marketeer. Sure. Or, or you're writing something for the market. And I get why people do that. You know, we all need to make a living and I, I, it's not a criticism. But I think, um, yeah, I kind of, I had kind of a clear idea in my head of what I wanted to do and of Newt and, and Newt's voice being sort of the, the, the key to it. And that's sort of what I, what I did. Yeah. And I think the reason it's been published as Young Adult is because Newt, Newt is, is, is young. You know, Newt and Devlin are um, sort of two young characters in it who are both sort of early teens. Um, and they're, you know, two of the kind of key protagonists. And I think that's why it's published as young adult. Mm. I mean, I, I read a lot of young adult stuff because I think some of the best writers writing today are writing young adult stuff yeah. um, and writing for children. I really do. I think they're some of the best storytellers. Um, well, you're traversing two different areas, really. And I think to write for children and to do it with uh, empathy for them and, and not doing yeah. it in any patronising way is a real gift. Yeah, and I think also, like, teenagers ask questions, right? Teenagers are, like, the, the kind of... Teenagers and, like, two-year-olds are the best for just asking questions. And teenagers ask, obviously, more informed questions than a two-year-old does. But just sure. that... That asking kind of like well, why I'm not going to do that why and teenagers are kind of brilliant at pushing pushing boundaries and asking those questions like how late can I stay out why can't I stay out later to things like why aren't we doing more about climate change you know I mean I didn't I hadn't heard of Greta Thunberg before before I started writing this but it's kind of it's one of those sort of happenstance things where it's it's come out and obviously she is extraordinary yeah it's extraordinarily powerful young woman and I think also at that age when you're sort of you know, on the cusp of puberty and after puberty, there's a real power. There's a real power. You, I think those kind of young adults, which is what they are, really sort of start to realise that they have agency and that they can use it. Mm. And I think that's a really empowering thing. And that's that. So that's something that did feed into kind of new that sense of realising that you can do something, you can change things, or you can, sure. uh, you can at least try and change things. I mean, it's very relevant to now. Slavery still exists today. You, you could say it's a form of slavery. It's still very relevant to uh, some of today's world. Yeah, I mean, I read a horrible statistic the other day that there's something like, it's like over a million children still in slave, still um, working in mines. Mm. It's something nuts. Like, it's horrific. Like, there are children working in mines now. So there's children working in open mines for coltan, um, in the in in the Congo, um, I'm not going to call it the Democratic Republic because I think if you need to put that before your country, you're probably not democratic. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of children working in the mines there, and they're open cast mines, but they're still dangerous, and they're still dirty, and they're still filthy, and those kids have no protection, and a lot of them are also, you know, um, past child soldiers and stuff as well. I mean, these these kids have been abused, really, mm. um, and it's the same in South America. You know, there's children working down the mines mines there as well, and it's mm. it's not gone away. It's just because it's not in our country anymore. We think it's hidden, you know, um, which is which it is. Yeah. But Coltan Coltan is in your mobile phone. It's in it's in my computer. It's in your laptop. It's in your tablet. You know, we're communicating now through machines that use coltan, and that coltan will have almost certainly come from Congo. I mean, it didn't you occur know. to me to think how awful these conditions would be, but you've brought that alive in the book, and it's very much a, a, a topic for I would have thought discussion in schools. This is a great book to be used uh, as as a teaching tool in in schools. Would you would you think? Yeah, definitely, because it is, I mean, it's definitely inspired by what really happened, you know, children, I mean, it's horrendous, so um, I, I can I can startle you with some horrific stuff, really, mm. I mean, obviously there's the stuff in the book, but um, before 1842, anyone could work down a mine, pretty much, so there are records of a, lot, a fair number of four-year-olds working down the mines. And there's also records, records in Shropshire, where I now live, records of three-year-olds and two-year-olds working down mines. And so they would have been down there with one of their parents, but they would almost certainly have been helping pick up bits of coal and put them in a basket or something. So they would have been down there helping, Mm. and they would probably have been down there helping in the dark, and they would have been doing the same hours. So that's 12 hours a day, six days a week. Mm. You know, and the, the, the first-hand accounts from the kids are just extraordinary. So in um, there was a two-year investigation, basically, that Queen Victoria um, re- requested quite early on in, in her reign. And so the inspectors went around a lot of the mines all up and down the country, you know, throughout England, throughout Wales. Um, and they went down mines and they spoke to these children. So we have these extraordinary first-hand accounts from children who were actually working down the mines. And... I mean, it just it it just breaks your heart to read them. You know, these are children who might have been maimed, who might who might now be disabled through working down there, but also children who are just so tired. Like, like in the book, one of the, like the youngest character, Toe, falls asleep into his food because he's mm. so tired, and that is based on a real account from a, a, mm. a child who, on their one day off on Sunday, was so tired they couldn't even play a game, couldn't even go and play football. It's almost like you're lighting a candle for the memory of those people, and quite rightly so. I mean, they're, they're lost voices, but you're bringing back to the fore. I hope so. I mean, and I hope that. I mean, I think, I think we really glamorise the Victorian era, and I think you know, there's people like Jacob Rees-Mogg who definitely glamorise the Victorian <laughs> era. You know, and I think we we do tend to think of it as like top hats and engineering projects and kind of great innovations and great ideas, mm. you know, and things like, you know, evolution and, you know, and it, it it is all those things. It was all those things, but it was built on exploitation and it was built sure. on slavery. Absolutely. And I don't, I think we've got better at talking about slavery. I think there's a long, long way to go on that, mm. but we've got better at talking about that and about kind of the... The, the the real dark side of, of I want to say the dark side of the empire. It says I'm talking about Star Wars, but it's far <laughs> worse than that. <laughs> you know, but we need to talk about that dark side more. And I think we also need to talk about the dark side here. And I think it is that thing of because mines are underground and because mines were so often in you know rural areas, they weren't visible. They weren't visible to the country in the same way that kind of 
you know, the cotton mills were. Of course, yeah. And, and, and the cotton mills, obviously, is another story in terms of exploitation. But um, working conditions in the cotton mills were, were improved before working conditions in the coal mines were. And I think that is because that they were visible. Mm. They were buildings that were, you know, there right in front of you in the city, um, whereas the coal mines weren't. You know, they were underground. They were hidden. Yeah. And talking about sort of pushing boundaries with your book, um, there's sort of uh, sexual violence or mm. scenes that, uh, that, that seem to be leading up to that. Uh, I mean, was that the real consideration, how much you could put in because of the age group you're aiming at? Um, not massively. I mean, young adult books deal with pretty much anything and everything. OK. Because uh, young adults are, are young adults, really. Sure. Um, and I don't think... I think they're much more, certainly the young adults that I come across, whether I'm doing creative writing with them or, you know, just like friends, kids or, you know, kids that I meet and talk to. Um, they're really well informed and they do ask those questions and they are smart and they are engaged. And I think you patronise teenagers at your peril, you know. Absolutely. Um, so I think it's better to deal with those things. And there was, there certainly was um, some levels of, I guess, sexual opportunism um, and abuse that went on. I mean, there, there are records of women giving birth down the mines and there are records of women being raped down there, which is what we'd call it now, because that's sure. what it was. Mm. Um, but they're few and far between because a lot of those people didn't have a voice. They didn't read and write. So there's no way for them to record their stories. And that's one of the things that makes that kind of, the report the Queen Victoria commissioned so impressive is that really it's it is those voices and that they get a chance even though it's only a couple of paragraphs or a short piece from each one there is at least those vo those voices are at least talking directly to you yes sort of through history really and i think mm. and there are bits that are you know from the book that are taken directly from that there are you know like i say toe falling into his meal and other bits of wording and i have named boy McAllister was a real a real boy oh. um, Newt Coombs is named after B.L. Coombs, who wrote a biography, um, of, he wrote his autobiography about working down the mines. Later on, he wasn't Victorian era. Um, and Devlin is based on, um, is named after Ray Devlin, who wrote a book about the children of the pits up in the Lake District, around the kind of Whitehaven District. Okay. I, I think you're right. I like that idea of lighting a candle to those people, to, you know, all those people, really. Mm. No, it's, it's I think wonderful. When people think of mines now, when people think of mines now, they think of kind of the miners' strike and they think of the 70s. And they don't think of that kind of hundreds of years ago. It's not really that long ago. It's not that many generations between now and then. I suppose it's because it's nothing we can affect any change with now because it's in the past. But of course, this echoes what is happening in the world. And that's why I think it's so relevant as well as being such a pacey um, thriller. My father always used to say, Pitt works more than you in. You got to coax the coal along and not be riven and chewing. The deputy crawls from flat to flat, the putter rams the chunnins, and the man at the face must nay his place like a mother nezer youngin. How long did it actually take you to write Bearmouth, um, Liz? <laughs> 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 um, that's, I'm, I'm going to make a lot of other people quite cross when I say this. So research-wise, it took me a while... But to actually write it, it took me pretty much a month. Oh. So I wrote it quick. I write really, I think about something forever until I can see it. So it's almost like a film in my head. Ah. And then I just try and clear. So I didn't write it like within a month entirely, but I wrote it like two, I had one two week session on it. And then I had a bit of a gap and I had another week on it. Were you just living well, on just... pot noodle and coffee? <laughs> 
connecting ourselves with the environment, I suppose, like rewilding of ourselves as well. Mm. Well, you've hooked me anyway. I want to know what <laughs> happens next. Um, there is talk, <laughs> I hear, on the great vine, um, of a film of Bear Mouth. Now, are you going to spill the beans about this? Is there any beans to spill, Liz? Yeah, they're sort of orange. I mean, <gasps> sacre bleu. This, it feels again. It feels like a weird. It's the che- weird cheese dream thing again. But um, yeah, I um, I've sold the film rights, and you know, obviously being a cynic, as I mentioned earlier, being a, being a cynic, I kind of thought, well, you know, I sold the film rights, but it might never happen because it's a challenging book to film, not mm. just because it's set down a mine, but because of what happens in it and various twists and turns. Um, but then uh, Endeavour, um, who are an amazing, big American company, they're part of William Morris Group, have kind of partnered with us. And the script is being written by Susan E. Connolly, who is a young Irish writer who is magnificent. Um, and she's really exciting and really, really interesting person. She's just got a PhD in Cambridge on um, statistics and social impact. And she's an extraordinarily clever um, clever person and brilliant, brilliant writer. Um, and she's really passionate about the book. And I met her ages ago. And we were a bit like, oh, hopefully this will happen. And yeah. Um, I mean, it'd be brilliant. I'd love I'd love to see it as a film, because I think it is a challenging book to make into a film. But Well, it's going to be think... very different, isn't it? I mean, you, yeah, you won't have the that's... inner monologue unless you would have the odd narration over it. But it, it obviously does need quite a bit of adapting. But, but yeah, I mean, fantastic. You know, because it would be different. And that's the thing that really excites me about it is that, mm. you know, the challenge of how do you kind of recreate that essence of the book, but yeah. then it's something else. And, and you know, it's quite funny because quite a few people are like, are you going to write the screenplay? It's like, no, <laughs> <laughs> that's not my area of expertise. <laughs> Liz, I'm so excited about the film and about how amazingly successful the book has come. Not surprisingly, I mean, it was such a page turner and it's just such a privilege to get to finally talk to you about Bearmouth. So thank you so oh. much. And best of luck with all of it. I don't think you need much. I think you've got some magic pixie dusk and, and, and lots of talent. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Well, it's very nice to talk to you finally as well. Oh, you know, fantastic. We kept sort of missing each other, but it's been, yeah, it's been lovely. Thank you so much. And I'm, I'm so glad you liked it because it it's quite an exposing thing. You create something, you write something, you pour a lot into it, and then it goes out into the world and you kind of think, Oh, it's, it's, yeah, it's your baby. I, yeah. I hope people like it. You, know, <laughs> you, you don't know what's going to happen. So, yeah, that means a lot. Liz Hyder, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Joe, Joe, and listen, lad, you'll hear the cold face working. There's many a marrow missing, lad, because he wouldn't listen, lad. Me father always used to say the pip works more than hewing. You've got to coax the coal along and not be ripping and chewing. The deputy crawls from flat to flat. The putter rams the German. And the man at the basement lies late. SNSonlineshow.com Your brand new one-stop shop for all things SNS. Take a tour through our wide and diverse collection of shows and listen in to our exclusive range of in-depth interviews spanning the popular arts, featuring actors, writers, journalists, stand-up comedians, musicians and more. You can also enjoy our shorter bite-sized series covering vibrant new theatre, television and book releases. 
And with our Arts Lifestyle Remit, you get to explore issue-based topics, including health, mental health, women's rights around the world and LGBTQ. Contact us with both your comments and suggestions for future guests. And don't forget to read up on our blog, regularly updated with articles and photographs, a forum where everyone is welcome to contribute. SNSonlineshow.com, your one-stop shop for all things SNS. SNS.